This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. One of the terrific things about human beings is that we're able to learn and to know new things and to be curious about things and to develop that curiosity moving forward. And uh, when you say education, the picture that comes into my mind, forgive me, as a California, as a freeway, kind of a freeway to the future and a, a pathway to really living our human potential. That's Michael Drake, the first African-American president in the history of the University of California. Newly installed, he's responsible for running a system with 10 campuses, five medical centers, and some half million students and staff. This is so great that you could join us today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You have such a distinguished career in education. And now you're taking over, have taken over in the last few months, the University of California, which is such a vast enterprise, at the very time that we're in the middle of a pandemic. How are you handling that? Well, first, uh, thank you. Nice to see you. Nice to be with you. And, you know, I think we're all uh, challenged by this pandemic. It really is affecting us in so many ways. And so it uh, I'm really blessed to be working with a group of people whose uh, sleeves are rolled up, uh, all hands on deck, doing all we can as a university to be able to take care of the patients that we're seeing in our hospitals, to support our students, to support our staff, to support our faculty and their research. And it really is uh, uh, an everyday, all day enterprise. But I'm really blessed to be working with people who are up to the task and and utterly engaged. Are you doing a lot of remote learning or all, or how do you handle the, is it a hybrid? How do you do it? Yes, great question. So all right, we have 10 campuses. And uh, and so the campuses are all a little bit different. They're overwhelmingly remote. And so probably 95% of the courses that we're teaching at the undergraduate uh, level and uh, graduate level are remote. Our health sciences campuses, where we're training doctors and nurses, many of those classes are continuing because that in fact is the sphere in which this is, is occurring. And we have some other places where we're doing things that are uh, quite innovative. Our San Diego campus, we have uh, tents that are working as Wi-Fi enabled places for people to have classes or study outside. So the airflow is good and the density is such that it doesn't challenge the social distancing and physical distancing we need. So we have a variety of those efforts uh, around the edges, but the majority of our education is online and virtual. Is the student body about what you'd expect, or is, has the pandemic reduced the student body to any extent? You know, we're, uh, we feel good about this. I mean, the student body has not been reduced to any extent. In fact, the California students are up slightly. We're down a little bit in the uh, U.S., uh, non-California U.S. non-residents. We're down in, in a, a bit in, in our international students, a few, um, I mean, hundreds of students there. But across our wide, uh, the, uh, the breadth of our enterprise, our 280,000 students, our numbers are the same, uh, maybe slightly higher than they were a year ago. So we're really pleased about that. And, and our students are making progress toward their degrees. That's not, we, we all love being together. 
it's not as good as being together, but with all that we have, the students and the faculty have really come together to uh, do the best they can to make progress during these challenging times. You know, somebody brought to my attention when I was talking about this with an educator. I I had assumed that missing face-to-face contact with a professor is a big loss, and they corrected me and said, you know, one of the biggest assets of a university education is the fellow students and missing the association with them is I, do they get together on their own do you suppose uh, virtually yeah i appreciate that so i uh, last spring i was teaching i teach a class every spring at uh, uh, a seminar and and i remember when we went from in person to virtual education that first week i was really excited to see my students on the screen you know and you really feel that <laughs> connection but i also could and feel how excited they were to see each other. You know, they, that was really that was really what brought them together. Yeah. You know, we have uh, uh, students living on campus, even though we're virtual. We have from a few hundred students living on campus at, at our said campus to nearly ten thousand students living on campus at San Diego. So even though they're taking their classes virtually, they're living in campus housing again in a in a, a range. And the students, two things about that. One, the students seem to like being able to be at least in a community of other students when they, they can. And second, we have really uh, strongly enforced uh, public health guidelines on how they can and should interact. And we've seen over this quarter, over this semester, that the, the positivity rate, the infection rate among our students who live on campus is much lower than among the similar aged cohort that live in the communities surrounding our campuses. No order of magnitude lower. So the campuses have been like like bubbles. They've been safer for students than being out in the community. Is it because they stay in their bubble or are they more observant of the regulations? What, what do you suppose contributes to that? That sounds really remarkable. It's been, we've been watching it, you know, every week uh, since, since August. And I would say that uh, two things happen. One is that they tend to stay in the bubble well, and that helps a lot, and they tend to be quite observant. If you look on campus, essentially everyone is wearing a mask. People know what the rules are. They're very concerned about that. And part of that is because we we started, we had two campuses that are semester campuses starting in August. Our quarter system uh, campuses started in September. And I think the students and the faculty, the staff were all able to see what happened when people came back to school and didn't observe those distances, then the infections ran wild. So I think that there was a, a good life lesson and our students have been very thoughtful young adults and uh, and we're doing all we can with, you know, hand uh, washing and cleaning and doing what we can to support them. And the infection rates on campus have stayed uh, gen- overwhelmingly less than 1%, which has been great. That That is wonderful. You know, I, I, when I think about your decades of work in education, you must have a very clear picture in your mind of what you think a good education is. It's meant many different things at different times. There was a time in my life when education was considered not so good if it wasn't so-called relevant. And at other times it was based on the classics. At other times, the idea that you should be prepared for your career first and never mind anything else. What, what, where, where, do you, where do you put yourself in that? You know, I think that first education is an opportunity. It's a pathway forward. Uh, one of the, the terrific things about human beings is that we're able to learn and to know new things and to be curious about things and to develop that curiosity moving 
forward. And, you know, my whole life I've been younger, so I, I didn't know what it would be <laughs> like to be older. What I've seen is that that curiosity stays the same, that you could continue to learn things and want to know new things. And, and that, that's a great characteristic of human beings. And I think that education is a foundation, as a pathway toward learning those things. We think of the university, and I'm a, a fan of residential education at universities. We think of ourselves as trying to develop the whole person. So we think about the academic preparation, the kind of things that take place in a classroom. We think about research and creative uh, education, things that might be in a laboratory or on a stage, you, you know, as a, a creative person in that way. But we also think about character excellence and leadership excellence. And those things you learn really from the people you're living with and working with and growing with. And, and we try to create an environment in which all of those things are supported and nurtured as you move forward and then go off into the world as an engaged, engaged leader. So uh, when you say education, the, 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 the picture that comes into my mind, forgive me, as a California, as a freeway, kind of a freeway to the future and a, a pathway to, to uh, really living our human potential. Do you, in terms of character and leadership, do you have formal education in those lines or, or do you provide an environment that encourages it? Well, I'm, I'm curious about that notion. How do, you, how do you do that? Yeah, I love that question. So a couple things that we do. So we have across our campuses, we have hundreds, in fact, totally thousands of clubs and organizations that students are involved in where they get to be the leaders or the organizers or the planners of the things that they're doing from the French club to the chess club to uh, organizations that would focus on, uh, uh, you know, our black student union. I mean, a whole variety of different things that people would do. The Cavalry Foundation, the science uh, clubs, the chemistry, all those mm. things are there. So students can get involved in those kinds of things. And, and that's great. I'm a fan of collegiate athletics and you know, we have uh, uh, intramural and, and intercollegiate athletics where people get a chance to really compete and learn about themselves under under pressure. And so if you look at our students, the vast majority of them are involved in one or another organization or club or sporting activity or something else that's kind of a co-curricular uh, uh, set of co-curricular guide, uh, guideposts toward that character and leadership direction uh, mm -hmm. development. One, one more thing I'll say, and something I, I mentioned I teach, I teach a freshman seminar. And so we have many of our faculty teaching seminar courses for our students, where the concept really is more the critical thinking that you develop in the mm -hmm. seminar rather than learning a poem or an equation. Um, it really is, here's some information how might you process this and discuss it with your, your fellow students? And all of these things, I think, give us a chance to have ideas, try, try our ideas out, see what they sound like, engage with people. And it's a big part of the, the collegiate experience for me. So the word seminar implies to me that you hear from the students in the class along with the professor. Is that, is that right? So the critical thinking comes in when their ideas are tested in front of other people, I guess. Absolutely right. We try to ask them questions that have challenging answers or that we don't know the answers to, you know, and <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, it may say something. I was, I was a professor at medical school for many, many years, and I learned that <clears throat> my fourth year students kind of would know who I was by the time they were seniors. 
And when we did rotations, they would only ask me questions that they knew I knew the answer to. You know, they didn't <laughs> want to stump me or make me feel uncomfortable. So they wanted to say, gee, what do you think about this? And it'd be something I'd written a paper on. So I'd feel great. <laughs> the, the first year students didn't, didn't know any better. Yeah, and yeah. so they would ask you things that you didn't know the answer to. And that makes you think more. And, and we try to do that with our students as well. You, you mentioned curiosity as part of the education process. And you made me think of curiosity-driven science. Do you have, given, given that it's so important as a driving engine of the economy in pretty much every country where there is curiosity-driven research, do you have a, any special attention on basic research well, we, you know, the University of California is um, uh, a research-based institution. It's something we're very proud of. You know, we lead the nation in patents, and uh, we're among the largest, uh, the best-funded institutions from the NIH and all of the uh, uh, places where basic science is, is funded. So the, the Basic Science Foundation of our enterprise is a very important part of what we do. And, and, and so that's for our, our faculty. It's about half of what they do is spend their, about half their time doing research. We have opportunities for graduate students, certainly, but also for undergraduate students to be involved with faculty in basic bench research from the very beginning. So again, across our, our campuses, we have tens of thousands of undergraduate students engaged in research on a daily basis. And the- Undergraduate students. Undergraduate students yeah. uh, as a routine. And, and what they see is they learn scientific method, but they also learn that that curiosity is something that can, can feed you. Again, personal case, I remember asking one of my professors a question once, and he didn't know the answer, and it was polite. And he said, gee, you know, we really don't know that. You should, you should look into that. And I thought, huh. And I worked with him, and we designed a research project. I learned the answer. I haven't stopped. That's so exciting. That's really exciting. It's exciting. And, you know, it sort of answers the question that I had for you, because I was really curious about curiosity. And it, it seems to me that it's possible that there are not a lot of incentives in the outside world to pursue a career in basic science. If you get something, if, you, if the result of your research is, is a device you can patent or a piece of software you can turn into a company, that's a, a greater incentive than something that has no end product maybe for 100 years but turns things upside down. But what you're, what you're describing sounds like a process in which from the very beginning, the, the wick of their intellectual candle is lit early on and their curiosity is channeled into exciting avenues. I, let me say, I, I hope that that's true. I mean, thinking again of you and your career and uh, you know, people who, who work in the creative arts, that you are always working on a new way of interpreting something that's being written or a new way of playing the piano or just looking at a problem and saying, gosh, how might I address this, uh, bringing who, my personality, my experiences, my interest to it at this time. And so the kind of solving the problem, being creative is a, a part of your lives moving forward. I think the same thing happens in the lab, that you have a problem, a question, you say, gosh, how am I, might I apply myself to moving forward with this and imagining this in a different, a different way? 
um, I always, again, I found it exciting to do that. It was fun, you know, and, and uh, that's a, a big part of the engine of, of, I think, what drives us forward here at universities. Great when they turn to products later. We love that as well. But just learning how things work, uh, um, uh, learning new ways of approaching old problems, I think that's that's uh, quite stimulating. And I loved how you uh, you used an analogy from the arts to describe that. Because it's very interesting to me that you you are apparently a serious musician. I laugh. I'm a serious listener to music, but I'm a. <laughs> uh, well, I've seen I've seen videos of you playing in, uh, in rock bands, and and you sound pretty good to me. Was there a time when you had to choose between being a physician and a musician? You know, I was about uh, 18, and 19. I was a pre med. And and there was a guitar in my chemistry test. That the chemistry test won. I'll just tell you that there was no, uh, you know, there was no. So I, I played a little bit as a, you know in high school, and then I really got on with the rest of my career. And and then a few years ago, you know, I pulled out the guitar to play songs for my grandchildren, and then with a, a few friends from here and there. So it's it's great fun. But you, I've I've read that you you also look into it in a historical perspective. Um, don't you or haven't you taught a class in uh, music related to the social justice movement? Uh, the, the seminar that I mentioned I teach, the critical thinking seminar, is one that focuses on the Supreme Court civil rights and the music of the civil rights. Ah, that's so, yeah. Popular music in the United States in the 50s and 60s and how it was expressing, how people were expressing themselves through music and then how they express themselves in the courts and on the corners, and that's what we talk about. Isn't it interesting that so many political movements have had music as a really important part of them? I'm thinking of uh, even in, in uh, the Soviet Union, the Beatles and other rock and roll groups were, were smuggled in and became part of the... Uh, the anti-establishment effort, Hungary. I'm thinking of the movie Z, where where music was. I remember the movie Z. <laughs> Nobody else remembers the movie Z. I think the two of us remember the movie Z. Yeah, right. <laughs> we both go from A to Z practically. But now I go further past Z than you do. I can. I'm older than you. But what what was it? What was the relationship that was special about music and the civil rights movement in those days. How did how did the two work together? You know, there's an interesting thing. I have a granddaughter. I have two granddaughters, I should say, but uh, two grandsons. But one of my granddaughters was about 10, 11 months old, couldn't quite walk. She could pull herself up, but couldn't quite walk. And I was playing something for her older sister, who was, who was three years older, two and a half years older. And, uh, and the one who couldn't quite walk had pulled herself up to an ottoman, and she was dancing. Uh, to this little music before she could before she could walk or or, or talk. So there's something about music that uh, connects us mm-hmm. um, uh, as people all around the the world from from time immemorial and from the time that we, again before we can walk or talk we can hear music and it makes us it makes us move. So I I think it's a way that people can connect just the music and then when you have a, a message and you know from Antebellum times, there were messages people wished to, to share and couldn't write, uh, couldn't share political messages in a political way because mm-hmm. you couldn't 
give a speech, but you could sing songs that had a double meaning and communicate with uh, people and, and save stories and put them to songs so that they would last. And so I think a way of communicating, a way of touching people, a way of, of moving people, a way of being human together, the music is very important. And when you're thinking about a movement that you wish to change the world, finding ways to connect yourself with, with others is, is critically important. Changing the world. What you remind me of, of the idea that you're ch you're coming in with an opportunity to change uh, an entire university system. You have so much experience, not only at Ohio State where you just were, but many years in the California system before that. So you know it very well. Do you have a list of a wish list of things that you'd ideas you'd like to pursue as you as as you deal with the the, the, the challenges like COVID right now? What 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 are your long range ideas? You know, I have a, a couple. I have a basic a basic idea that's not exciting, which is that we want to just be better and more efficient at what we do, so that we can be a better version of ourselves. I think that's always that, that that's very important. That was very important to me in the past. I'm thinking a lot about two things that I'd love us to be able to really lean into. One is social justice, and can we help uh, support a square wave of change in, in social justice to make it that we can make our communities safer, but also feel safer, that we can make the, the, the first people who come to our communities understand that uh, these are places that are their homes and that they need not be uh, that we don't want to have a circumstance where you feel that the people there who make it safe are also intimidating or disrespectful mm -hmm. toward you who are the, the citizens. And so I think we have a lot to do to, to raise our level of performance there. Couldn't be more important. What, the notion of kind of reestablishing the relationship between the people in the community and the people who are there to make them safe. What's the role of the university in that uh, relationship how can you how can you be of help in that relationship you know we have um we're a community of about five hundred thousand people uh our students about two hundred eighty thousand students two hundred twenty thousand faculty and staff so we're large communities and on our campuses where we have people living with us working with us all day we have our own police forces we have our own mm. safety uh, uh personnel there to help us and the first thing we'd like to do is to make sure that we are that 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 is a model force that that's a, a, a that the the way that we imagine and carry out the activities of making ourselves safe that, that we exemplify the best practices in those in in that enterprise. And as we learn and practice the best practices ourselves, we want to do that in an academic way so that we can share that information and then in a policy-based way so that we can communicate with uh, uh, the people who live in our broader communities. I, I'll say today, this afternoon, I happen to have a conversation with the mayor of the city of Oakland, where our, our office is located. And as we learn things on our campuses that help us be safe and, and make people under, feel respected and as we're keeping them safe, and as the mayor of the city of Oakland learns things from, from her extraordinarily uh, important work in that same sphere, we hope we can come together and, and help elevate the way this is done broadly across, uh, across the society. So uh, great to do our best on campus, great to partner with our local communities and to do what we can to make us keep us all safe uh, and, and to make sure that can be done in a way that helps us uh, to, to feel the respect that we deserve. It's an interesting idea to use your own campuses 
as, in a way, incubators or labs to study the problem and perhaps devise techniques that can increase the harmony among these groups that really are, were born to work together but don't do so well now. Well, you, you mentioned something that really intrigues me when you talked about the nearly or over 500,000 people between the students and the faculty and the staff. I'm so interested in how people manage huge numbers of people. When I, when I would direct a movie, I would have 200 people to manage. That's nothing compared to half a million. How, how do you do it? It's an amazing feat to me. You know, I thought about this before, and the way I've described it, uh, it maybe if I may, is it's a little bit like swimming, and there's how you'd swim in a pool, or how you might swim in a lake, or how you might swim in an ocean. And so this is like swimming in an ocean. I mean, it's basically making good strokes and trying to breathe, you know, and uh, and staying on the surface. Uh, you, there's a whole lot beneath you, and a lot of things that can go wrong in one way or the other. But your your basic job is to, you know, deal with that that you can. Uh, control that's around you. And you know this went from your, you, you mentioned directing. So you had your camera director and uh, your assistant director and the people who did different things, the, 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 the sound editor, all specialists who were outstanding at their work. You work with them, they work with their teams, those teams work with others. And then you also, as the director, could kind of stand back and look at the entire project with some idea of how it was going, saying, a little bit this way, a little bit that way, and 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 try and apply uh, uh, some uh, support to those people who are doing the real work. And at the end of the day, oh, you know, fingers crossed, you'd have something that, that that looked good. That's a good analogy, and and so is the swimming analogy. Although sometimes I think I'm at the level of doing the backstroke in the bathtub. <laughs> the ocean <laughs> sounds awfully vast. I'm also very interested as a system for us to. Uh, really lean into and make a, a, an impact in climate change. So we try to teach the science of climate change from a variety of, of points of view. We, from atmospheric chemistry uh, in one way to sustainable farming and no-till farming, uh, carbon sequestration, which I think is so important. So we, we try to look at all these things and then to teach them and model them in the various research things that we do on the campus from an academic uh, point of view. And then we have a very large division of agricultural and natural resources and there we think about, again, agriculture broadly, of uh, farming and, uh, and ways we can do that in a more sustainable way. But we're also thinking very much about forestry and forest management these days. You know, we've had the devastation in California of wildfires, and we want to really apply more science to that and find ways that we can make the forests uh, safer, healthier and safer. So, all of the, so there are all those things that we do from our own behavior and use of energy to what we teach, to what we do research on. I, I drive a plug-in electric hybrid. You know, we, we want to be good practitioners. We want to be good students. We want to be good scientists. And we want to do all we can to help uh, us as a people, us as humanity, uh, deal with climate change. That sounds so good. Congratulations on taking over this system and on what you plan to do and guiding it toward, as you say, an even more successful future. Thank you so much for talking with me. I enjoyed it. Wonderful to spend the time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Best of holiday wishes to you. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. 
My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Michael Drake came to the University of California after six years as president of Ohio State University and before that, nine years as chancellor of UC's Irvine campus. His lifelong interest in popular music and its role in the political culture has led him not only to teaching a seminar on the subject, but also to becoming a board member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is the last of the current season of Science Clear and Vivid. We'll be back in the spring with a new series focusing on a new generation of scientists, young researchers already pushing the boundaries of their scientific fields. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.